Welcome to Radio Free Culture from WFMU, where we examine issues at the intersection of digital media and the arts. My name is Cheyenne Homan, and in this episode, we'll be talking with Paul Reese Mandel and Eric Klein of Radio Survivor, a long-running blog and recent podcast. This is part one of two, in which we discuss differences between podcasting, web streaming, and terrestrial radio. Hi, I'm Paul Reismandel, and I am a co-founder and editor at Radiosurvivor.com. It's a website that's now six years old that focuses on great radio, so principally non-commercial, college, independent radio, community radio, commercial radio, internet radio, and podcasting. And I am a co-host and co-producer of the Radio Survivor podcast. Hello, my name is Eric Klein, and... I make radio and I make podcasts and I am also a co-producer and a host of the Radio Survivor podcast with Paul. And I should probably (laughs) add that my day job is I work for Midroll Media, which is a podcasting company. It owns two networks, Earwolf and Wolf Pop, and I am the podcasting evangelist. So my job is to try and make people more aware of podcasting, in particular the business of podcasting, and to get advertisers to sponsor our shows. So the Radio Survivor Project, as you noted, the site's been around for many years, sort of a legacy radio coverage source, I, I feel. But this podcast that you're doing is pretty new. I was on the first episode <laughs> not too long ago. Yes, you were. Thank you. Thank you. It was, it was super fun. Why did you want to start doing a podcast in addition to all the other coverage that you do? I've been wanting to do one for a long time, in part because I feel like it's sort of walking the walk. We talk about great radio. It seems like maybe we should also try to make something that is like great radio. It's also about reaching new audiences with a website People have to come and check it all the time. And they think about it and maybe they do it or maybe they don't or maybe they use an RSS reader so they get it kind of regularly. But, you know, we're all sort of saturated in terms of our attention. And so going into a different medium, I think, gives us the opportunity to reach new audiences who are also really interested in great radio and things like podcasting. And I think it only makes sense that if you're really interested in podcasting and great radio, you probably are interested in listening to podcasts. And so um, I think that that, again, helps us to broaden the audience. And it also sense that it helps us to reach a younger audience, since it seems as though um, all indications are that podcasting has a much younger audience. And those are exactly the kind of folks we think, one, might benefit from what we have to share, but two, we'd like to learn from, because we're really hoping to make this a much more interactive enterprise uh, with comments from our listeners and bring our listeners on as guests. You know, I met Eric when I moved here to Portland, Oregon, where we both live. Um, he got a hold of me because he had been a uh, reader of Radio Survivor, and we just sort of sat down and I told him about my ideas. And he was very encouraging and really uh, helped to shape how the show would actually start happening. And maybe, Eric, you could talk about why you want to work on the show. Yeah. So for me, I loved having coffee with Paul to talk about this stuff. It was a wonderful opportunity, such a privilege to meet someone interesting and exchange ideas with them. 
And it seemed like a natural fit to broaden that out, to share it with an audience, and then also to broaden the conversation where we were asking each other questions and we knew that there would be third and fourth and fifth and sixth people in the world that would have great answers to those questions. And so starting with some of the cool stuff that was just on our minds about where radio was at and podcasting and going from there and and trying to, uh, if not solve problems, at least dig into them a little bit. Already you've kind of addressed this issue of the decline of FM radio and like... The supposed decline. Right. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. Well, <laughs> well, that's what I'm getting at. Um, you know, this idea that broadcast radio is in decline or that it is less relevant because it's not directly necessarily connected to the web is something that I'm curious about. Was that an angle that you were going with in the podcast to reach a wider audience in general? I think it's always in the back of our mind. I mean, the the very name Radio Survivor implies that radio is surviving. And to have to even make that statement is always in the background of someone implying or saying outright that radio is dying. We want to give examples to people who love radio of great radio being made, new approaches, innovative ideas, and you know, sort of a sense that there is some evolution still going on in this medium, that not all the ideas have been tried, and that there are new things out to be tried. As new stations go on the air, I will note that FM radio grows every single year. We have not seen a decline in the number of stations. We've seen an increase in the number of stations every single year, period. And as the number of stations grow, there's more opportunity for new ideas and especially new voices and underrepresented voices to have a spot on the airways. And so we also hope to highlight approaches that then new broadcasters can learn from. So a little bit of a skill sharing sort of thing. So yes, to answer your, your original question, we are constantly combating this persistent idea that radio is dying or that it has to die because simply because it's analog and because, you know, it's supposedly superseded by television and superseded by the Internet and MP3s. We do so by highlighting the simple fact that there is no evidence. What I was thinking when you asked that question is this idea that you know, no radio is not dying, but we can certainly all agree that there's a lot of turmoil in the workplace for people who've been making radio. And we've certainly talked to people about that on our podcast, on our radio show. You know, the media consolidation environment of the previous decades has reduced the number of jobs, at least anecdotally. I had a job helping to make radio that I that I chose to leave the Bay Area. I wonder if I'll ever have another job, at least at a radio station. It's, it's such an interesting time for people who, who can dream of getting paid to podcast. And that's also something that we have addressed here on the show. And it is a coincidence. Coincidentally, what Paul does for his day job is, is working with a company that helps people make money off of their podcasts. So in decline is uh, we will definitely disagree with that and argue against it. And then in turmoil is something that we'd probably agree with. You can't see it, but I put in decline in air quotes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely. You're I, channeling the mainstream. You know, on our, on our, on our yeah. just recently produced episode last week, I just mm -hmm. love to throw this out there because Jennifer Waits, uh, who also participates in the, in the podcast and in the blog that the podcast is a companion to, Jennifer challenged this idea that I guess is really persistent, that media evolves 
and that the new form replaces the old form and the old form becomes extinct, which is silly and sort of immature. And so to think that, that since radio is one of the oldest forms of mass media around, that it has to be replaced by the new forms is sort of juvenile. It, it's silly to try to separate the two worlds. They're the same place. And that's a great point, Eric, because if radio declined, I would point my finger at commercial radio which went through a period of intense consolidation beginning in the year 1996 where large companies like Clear Channel now known as iHeartRadio focused on radio stations as real estate rather than broadcasting where they put them together, bought them up, hoovered them up as fast as they could, fired staff, instituted automation, got rid of especially local hosts, started making decisions on a regional rather than local level, really impacted local service, all in the name of profit. Because they said, hey, if we lower our operating costs, our profits go up. But in that same process, listeners caught on and realized radio isn't as good as it used to be. And it's not paying attention to my local community. Simultaneous with that, yes, there was a new competitor. And the internet, and to some extent the MP3, the iPod, and the iPhone, that the commercial industry turned a blind eye to. And at the same time, doing all of this ran itself into debt, which it still has and still isn't paying off, making it much more difficult for them to respond to that real challenge of digitization, something which we've seen public radio respond to with a lot of innovation. And we've seen a lot of community radio respond to with innovation and some college radio respond to with innovation. And that's, I think, why we think of public radio in some ways as ascendant, along with you know its embrace of podcasting in particular, while we think of commercial radio perhaps as in decline. But it had nothing to do with the technology of radio, but had to do with who owned those stations, how they treated them, how they treated local communities, and the ways in which they, they sucked as much capital out of the system they could until basically they sucked it dry. Right, and which was something that happened following what for their industry, for, that, for those folks, was like a policy victory in Washington, D.C., where they got people to uh, change the laws to allow them to degrade radio so they could make more money off of it. It, was, it wasn't an organic process that like, oh, now it's time for radio to sort of go in decline because it's not as useful anymore to people. They changed the rules. I think it's interesting, too, that when you first introduced what Radio Survivor covers and you kind of mentioned like podcasts and community radio stations and internet stations, and, and I think that I'm seeing a lot of low-power FM like community stations that start off as web stations and then like once they get their tower and their equipment, they can broadcast. Then they become hybrid stations. Do you think that the best strategy is to remain a hybrid station? I mean, WFMU is doing this with great result, broadcasting locally to the New Jersey, New York metropolitan areas, but then also, you know, broadcasting worldwide via web stream. And I feel like a lot of their community beyond what they can reach here in New York and New Jersey wouldn't be reachable without the web as a vehicle to reach, you know, a global audience, literally. I also see a preferential sort of angle, I guess. A lot, a lot of trajectories are like, oh, we're online now, but we want to be broadcasting to the community. And then I see these low-power FM stations, like, transitioning off the web. Do you think that there's a best approach here? I'm going to let Paul answer this question because I know that this is something that he's been writing about 
for a while. But I wanted to say before I do that, this was definitely one of those things that came up over coffee and was like, well, we're going to have to podcast to answer this question. (laughs) And it's been something that we have asked our guests on multiple episodes and gotten different answers that contrast each other. And so there is no one answer. It's a fun time to answer that question. You know, we have, we definitely talked to the Portland Radio Project as one example of a station that in the beginning saw that going on the internet to stream was their best course of action to move forward. And then, uh, in fact, because they talked to Paul, realized, oh my gosh, we have a window, let's do an LPFM, and uh, found the advantages of taking those risks because it costs more money and it's difficult to organize to get onto the um, terrestrial radio frequency. But they did that. And for them, that was a success and a, a worthwhile risk. And then we talked to someone else a couple of weeks later that uh, had an exact opposite tale, where they were looking at doing an LPFM in their community, found that because of the geography of their island, it was not going to be worth it. It would cost too much, and they still wouldn't reach as many people as they wanted to. So they went into community podcasting and and on and on and on. Everyone we talked to actually has a different example of, of how they struggle with that question. So it's really, that's a good one. Yes. I've always looked to WFMU as a leader in terms of its embrace of the internet going on really to the, to the very beginning of when broadcasting under the internet became practical. And I know that for WFMU, it was in many ways a very practical consideration um, in having a signal that had variable reach uh, even to the communities which you were hoping to serve with your broadcast signal. And the internet sort of made lighter work of that by allowing you to reach people who might just be in a basement apartment somewhere uh, where their radio reception wasn't so great, they could begin to receive WFMU on the internet. And in many community stations, I think, early on were afraid of the internet because they start to think, well, then nobody will listen to our terrestrial signal and we're putting all this money into that and maybe we'll see an ultimate decline because there will be fewer internet listeners than there will be people who can reach us over the air and that will be bad. I think what the last 20 years nearly has demonstrated is that that has not happened. I think that having an online stream for a broadcast station is a net plus if not an absolute requirement at this point. Um, it's an absolute requirement because young people tend not to have radios often. I was a college radio advisor from 2008 until 2013, and I asked the students who worked at the station, who loved radio, very active, how many of you own a radio? And if they answered yes, it was typically their car radio. The rest of the time, they listened to their own station on the internet. And so if you want to reach young people, you must have an internet stream. Um, I don't think that it is any longer something which is optional. But even more so, the great thing about an internet stream is that it has certain freedoms. One, you can certainly set up more than one stream. So if you are a community station that has more potential programmers and you know what to do with, now you have an opportunity to give them a real outlet to try out a bunch of different ideas and then perhaps allow them to move on to the, to the airstream uh, when they're ready, sort of set up a farm team. Of course, 
the, there are no uh, language restrictions on the internet. So that really does give you an opportunity maybe to channel some of your more challenging programs so that it doesn't have to only be on at 10 p.m. and later. Those are just a couple of reasons why it makes a lot of sense. And But for the low-power FM stations uh, that you mentioned, it's fantastic because it does give them the opportunity to go on the air before they have their transmitter. Get some practice. It allows you to get practice. It allows you to build up name recognition. It allows you to start inviting local folks in for interviews or local bands in for performances and helps to probably get more uh, support, especially financial support. So people can see, wow, this is a real operation and not just a dream. Uh, they're really doing it. And so now we want to get this on the air. You know, if we look back 20 years or so, a lot of community stations, when they were first going in the air, and this is before there was low power FM, often would work out a deal with local cable systems to get their uh, pre-broadcast signals on to like a community uh, bulletin board channel. And this is something which doesn't exist the way it used to, but there would often be this channel that would just be text that would have community announcements and news and weather and things like this. And in the background, there would be a radio station. And so they would negotiate, say, hey, can you put on our radio station until we get our FM going? And that was often an attempt. Similar, though, in scope, in an idea to having an internet stream to bring about attention and to, uh, to build support because you're actually doing it rather than just talking about what you're going to do. But I also need to speak up in favor of the license and why I think if you can get yourself a real radio license, whether it's low power FM or whether it's a full power uh, license, it's a great thing. And while that definitely adds cost and it definitely adds labor to the whole deal, it also adds permanency. Whether we like it or not, people still look at Internet things as potentially fly by night as less permanent. And so, hey, check out, it's sort of like, hey, check out my blog in, hey, check out my podcast. People do wonder, is this something which is just going to happen for two or three episodes? Is this just going to be something which is going to happen for, you know, a few months till someone gets tired of it? Well, I think something similar is true of, hey, check out our internet radio station. Someone may be excited about it, but I think there's always that in the back of the head, well, is this going to last? Because, the low bar to entry is wonderful, but the low bar of entry means there's a lot more people who sort of flirt with it and don't stick with it compared to a radio license. A radio license is hard to get. A radio license, especially if it's not a low power FM license, has real cash value on the market. People want it and will pay for it. You also might need to um, collaborate more with a larger group of people right. to get that radio license. So you've, you now you have a community Right. You, you have to sort of build it just to, to even get that license. And I think that often makes people take it more seriously. It says, oh, these folks are in it for the long run. Um, so even if it turns out that you have more listeners online or at least an equivalent number of listeners online, the fact that you have the license often shows to your community and, and that supports you, which, which might not even be the community in town. It could be community far away. We'll still look at this and say, oh, you know, they've got this license. They've been in it for so many years. They're not going anywhere because they've made this sort of commitment to the federal government, to the FCC, to maintain this license and everything that that requires. Uh, so certainly, you know, that's not me saying you shouldn't do an Internet station if you can't get a low power FM license. But I'm saying that if you do have one, take advantage of it, but also have that internet stream. I, at this moment in time, it, I don't think it's optional. 
Radio Free Culture is produced by WFMU and the Free Music Archive. Our theme song this week is The Spider-Man's Nano Loop by Uncle Bibby, which can be found at freemusicarchive.org under a Creative Commons attribution license. To find out more about Paul and Eric's ongoing podcast series, please visit radiosurvivor.com. Thanks to Katie Lavoie for her help in editing this episode of Radio Free Culture. 